I just want to do God's will. What you're seeking is a blessing from God. You must expect a miracle. You have the power of choice. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to Life Today Live, best of 2022. And uh, I got to tell you, this one, number two, this is one that I look forward to for a long time. I read the entire book from this guest, which is rare because I talk to someone every day and I can't read that fast. Um, but I'm a fan of The Daily Wire. Uh, you know, Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, Candace Owens, and Andrew Claven. He has his own program there, The Andrew Claven Show. Uh, and he's the author of a book called The Truth and the Beauty, which if you missed it this year, I highly recommend it. Wow, what an incredible book. So I was very excited to talk to Andrew Claven. You got me early in this book because I'll read the subtitle so people get it. It says, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. And I'm, I have an appreciation for poetry, but I'm not deep into that. And so I thought, well, okay, I don't know where this is going. And I cracked the book open, and you relate a conversation with your son um, where you were trying to understand Jesus. And I've spent my life trying to understand parts of the Bible and going, you know, I accept it. I don't know that I get it. And, and I always figure if I don't understand something in the Bible, it's because I don't understand it. You know, um, thank God for what Proverbs 3, I think it's 5 and 6 says, don't lean on your own understanding, but trust God, because I just hit that failure point. Here's what your son said, and I'd love, I'd love to, for you to expound on this. Your son said, maybe the problem is that you are trying to understand a philosophy instead of trying to get to know a man. And that, that shook me. Tell, tell us what you mean by that. Well, it, it shook me too. The minute he said it, I thought, wow, that's the smartest thing anybody's ever said to me. The, the reason being is that when you know somebody, some, you really know somebody, like you know your wife or you know your kids or your brothers and sisters, your parents, you don't think like, oh, this is his philosophy of life. I don't think, you know, this is my father's philosophy of life. What you do think is you think, oh, if dad were here, he would say this, or dad would really like this, or he wouldn't like that. And I thought, if I could get to that point, even a little bit with Jesus, then some of the things that I find mysterious about his words would suddenly be, be clarified. In other words, he's not maybe, maybe he's not expressing a philosophy. Maybe he's expressing a point of view that he wants to share with us. And one of the things I found when I went back and read it with that intent was that Jesus says that a lot. He says things like, I want the joy that's in me to be in you. And I mean, one saying I've always found very puzzling is love your enemies because I don't particularly like my enemies. You know, like, I, I thought like, why would I do that? But he tells you, he says, so that you will be a son of your father because this is the way God sees the world. And I thought, ah, he wants me to see what God sees. And weirdly, and it was a very strange thing, when I read the book like that, it was the lines of these poets whom I love that came back to me. And it started to refresh the way that I saw what Jesus was saying. And it, it, it's made a tremendous difference in my life. So I, I kind of wanted to pass it on. So I, I, I do want to get to some of the, your interesting takes on, on things like the, the Good Samaritan and the Sermon on the Mount. But on the poets, um, I, I found that kind of curious, frankly, because um, they weren't exactly the best examples of of morality, or, or even some of them even, you know, rejected God or fought against him. Uh, of course, Wordsworth had a, a transformation. Coleridge was an addict. I didn't even know that. Um, 
Why would why did you why did you look at those guys? Well, first it was because their words came back to me when I was reading the words of Jesus. But then when I thought about it, you know, because I asked myself the same question, like, really, am I really seeing this? But they were living at a time that was so much like this time. It was uncanny. I mean, we often think if you go back in the past, everything was better, everything was more solid, there were, you know, belief was more solid. But in fact, this is, we're talking about the uh, late 18th century and the early 19th century. There had just been this revolution in France. They thought this revolution was going to bring paradise. And the more they tried to get paradise, the more they killed people, the more they started to guillotine people, kill, murder the priests. They thought, we're going to murder all these priests, we're going to kill the king, we're going to kill the queen, and then everything is going to be great. Everything is going to be absolutely perfect. And all of Europe thought this, and certainly the intellectuals thought, ah, this is the beginning of paradise. Well, when it turned into not only a terror, but also a world war, because the Napoleonic Wars followed for 12 years, only a few people, and Wordsworth was one of them, went from being radicals to becoming conservatives. Mm. And they had a cancel culture just like we do. They, you know, they despised Wordsworth for this. They wrote famous poems about what a bad guy he was for becoming a conservative. But the task that they then had was to reconstruct the world, to reconstruct the world for a new era. Mm. So what had they lost? They had lost, they started to lose gender roles. They started to think, well, is marriage a good thing? Maybe women should be the same as men. You know, they started to lose faith in politics. Can politics change things? Should it be conservative politics or radical politics? With science, this was the first real surge of scientific discovery in, in the world. They started to lose their faith for the first time in Christian Europe, they started to lose their faith. Mm. And so a lot of these guys, when we first meet Wordsworth in this book, he's a what Coleridge called a semi-atheist. Uh, but by the end of it, he became a Christian. And C.S. Lewis said, if you read Wordsworth and follow his trail, you too will be, be converted. And so what I found was that just like, they were living in a time just like now when all our traditions are in ruins and under question, and they rebuilt the road back to what they knew to be true. Hmm. And that, only only one of them really knew this, but that turned out to be Jesus. And the one who knew it was Coleridge, who, while he was an addict and a hysteric and an emotional wreck, he was also one of the 10 most brilliant men who ever lived. And he was certainly the most brilliant man alive in that moment. And he was the one guy who said from the very beginning, Jesus is the model we're looking for here. Here's the way that we can learn to experience life the way he wanted us to experience life. And it, and it really it was... It was remarkable to me to watch these guys solving all the problems that we have, or at least beginning to solve all those problems. Yeah, and I did pick up on that because you don't, uh, you, you're not talking about today directly, but all these things that you're talking about, they are, they're like going on right now. Uh, and by the way, I just downloaded uh, on my audio books, Audible, the 1798 version of the Wordsworth Coleridge, thanks to you, so yeah. I'll be getting into that soon. Um, I want to read, so here's a line that I underlined, uh, and I, I just abused this book. It was wonderful. Radicals transgress the paradox of virtue because they claim the knowledge of good and evil for themselves and strip the power to freely choose virtue from others. In this way, they transform their imagined paradise into a living hell. And you're talking about, you know, the late 1800s, but you're talking about today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. When you tear down, say, a statue of Thomas Jefferson, and they tore down their statues too, by the way. That was part of the French Revolution. When you tear down a statue of Thomas Jefferson because he owned slaves, you're tearing down the man who taught you that slavery is bad. And so the, the big insight, the insight of, of against radicalism is that we live in time. 
We were created by the people who came before us and by the traditions that came before us. Mm -hmm. And we move forward and we change, and that's a good thing, but we change in keeping with those traditions. We give women rights that they didn't have before in keeping with our traditions. We don't suddenly say, oh, now our minds can recreate the entire universe. Uh, one of the poems I talk, to, I talk about in this book comes before this period, which is Paradise Lost, which is the great English poem about the fall of man. Mm -hmm. And in it, Satan is a character who says, you know, my mind is sovereign, basically. I can turn heaven into hell and I can turn hell into heaven. And instead, what happens to him in the poem is everything he touches turns into a little bit of hell. Mm -hmm. and, and that, I think, is what happens to people when they think that their inner life is sovereign over reality, sovereign over creation. But these poets rediscovered, after, tr after the French tried to reconstruct the entire world, what they rediscovered is that you're in collaboration with God, you're in collaboration with creation. You are a new thing. There's never been you before. Your experience is an absolute creation of your inside. Mm. But if that, if that experience isn't in collaboration with God's creation, it's going to go it's going to go straight to hell it is actually going to make your life miserable and it's going to make everyone around you miserable and so the, that's what the poets began to understand wordsworth said you were in collaboration with the one great mind this was before he became a christian he said you're in collaboration with the one great mind and jesus again this is when jesus said you have to be a branch of my vine mm. if you fall off if you're just a branch lying there on the floor you're not going to create fruit but if you're a branch of the vine you're going to create something new you're going to bear fruit and and that's what these guys had to rediscover after people did just just like they're doing now after they said you know what if i suddenly in the middle of this conversation tell you i'm a woman by golly i'm a woman i just recreated myself no you have to be in collaboration with reality because that is the creation yeah you draw a, a direct line of th that collaboration with reality to to the meaning of our lives and and i see a lot of people who seem to be lacking meaning in their lives and, and that even happens in the church sometimes and and explain that relationship to people because I, I think it's it's critical and i don't want to try to put words in your mouth but it was really uh significant i think when you start to understand the relationship between truth beauty nature god and and meaning right you know the the title of the book comes from a poem by john keats a great poem uh, called ode on a grecian urn and the it ends with the urn representing art speaking to mankind and it says beauty is truth and truth is beauty that's all you know on earth and all you need to know and when you first read that you think well wait a minute what you know what does that mean you know if i find you know red roses pretty and you find white roses pretty i mean do we have a different truth do we have a different beauty that's not what it means at all what it means is that when you connect with the truth you experience it as beautiful. That means you have to free your mind, you have to have a healthy mind, you have to have a healthy relationship with reality, and you have to have a relationship with reality. You can't just be having a relationship with yourself. But it means the ramification of that is that you are a God-made machine for finding the truth by experiencing beauty, by experiencing the beauty of the world, by experiencing the beauty of uh, other people. And of course, the key to that is love. I mean, that's what Jesus tells us. The key to finding that mm. beauty is, is through love. But still, it means that you're not 
doing this by yourself. You know, uh, a lot of times, for instance, in therapy or psychiatry, uh, people are told, well, you're just having a reaction to your erotic uh, desires, or you're just having a re reaction to your parents, or you're just having a reaction to tr a trauma you had. But actually, no, what you're, what's happened is you've become separated from the thing that you are meant to be, which is this machine for understanding God and communicating with God. It's what you were made for. It is, you were made for that. And when you're living life that way, when you're living life in that direction, suddenly you that joy that, that Jesus talks about is in you. And by joy, I don't mean happiness. You know, I don't mean like, oh, I'm, I'm so blessed. You know, I, I love it when Christians go around saying, I'm so blessed. I just lost my job and my wife left me, but I'm so blessed. I'm so happy. <laughs> you know, and you think like, well, nah, you know, not really. I mean, you know, when, when sad things happen, you're sad. And when happy things happen, you're happy. But joy in this context is what the poets called gusto. It means living life intensely with intense uh, purpose and intense involvement with your life so that you don't uh, go off into daydreams and you're not dissociated and you're not drinking and you're not taking drugs. You're actually living life and thinking, wow, this is important. You know, the best comparison I've ever come up with for this is when you go to a movie and somebody dies in the movie and you're weeping and you're sobbing and it's, oh, it's awful. Your heart is breaking and you walk out and somebody says, how was the movie? And you go, it was great. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that you have to live life like that. That's what I think Jesus means by joy. Yeah, that, that's interesting. All right, we're talking, we're talking to Andrew Clavin, and uh, this book is out now. Uh, just dropped yesterday, The Truth and Beauty, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book, a wonderful book, so I highly recommend it. And before I get in again, I, I really I, I want to pick your brain on a couple things, your observations of, of Jesus uh, and the things he said. Um, but I'm, I want people to understand a little bit of your background because you, I think you were 49 when, when you became a Christian, is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Give us a little idea of your journey. I'm, I'm interested in that. Well, obviously, it was a long journey. I was born a Jew, and I was raised in the Jewish tra Jewish tradition, but my parents didn't really believe in God. I mean, my mother was probably the most committed atheist I've ever met. I mean, it was just all silly to her. Hmm. And my father kind of had one of those superstitious relationships with God, like he didn't want him, God to hurt him, <laughs> but he didn't really believe in him. And the point was that God wasn't part of our lives. Jewish tradition was a Passover Seder was, but not God. And so I was very alienated from this. I thought, why am I doing this? Why am I talking this strange language? Why am I wearing a funny hat? Why am I doing all of this stuff? And when I was bar mitzvahed, I felt that I was really being dishonest when I said, I, you know, I believe in this and, uh, and now I'm part of the Jewish uh, tradition because I didn't believe in it. And in fact, I was given you know, I grew up in a very nice neighborhood and I was given thousands of dollars worth of jewelry and uh, stock and bonds and, uh, you know, money for my bar mitzvah. And one night I crept outside and I kept it all in a leather box and I threw it away because I felt that I had gotten it dishonestly by saying these things that weren't true. And I thought, that's it. I'm done with religion. Uh, it's ridiculous. It made me feel like a hypocrite. I do not want any part of this, except that I was I loved books. I wanted to be a writer. And as I studied Western literature, I found every single thing that I found true or beautiful somehow related back to the Gospels. Uh, and I, we didn't even have a New Testament in my house. I just had to go out and buy one. Uh, my father yelled at me when he saw me reading it because he thought this was the enemy, you know. And over time, I started to realize that if the things that I knew to be true were true, then there had to be at least a God. But the problem was I had so many troubles in my mind as a young person uh, that I, I went nuts. I went crazy. I, I, I became delusional, suicidal. I mean, the whole deal. And I thought, if I embrace Jesus now, not Jesus, but if I embrace God now, it'll just be a crutch 
you know, it'll be phony. Uh, and I, so I was so stubborn that I couldn't do it, you know. But by the grace of God, uh, and what I and what I actually think was a miracle, because I've never seen it happen to anybody else, I went sane. I found a psychiatrist who was brilliant, and he cured me. And psychiatrists don't normally cure people. <laughs> they're they're famous. You know, there's an old Onion headline: "Psychiatrist cures patient." You know, and I was that guy. <laughs> and and I, I went in there miserable and suicidal, and I came out happy and successful, and you know, well adjusted. And I thought, gee, but all the things that I thought before remain true. Uh, all the things that proved that there should be a God remain true. And almost by accident one night, I began to pray, and over the not to any specific God, but just to God. And over the course of five years, prayer transformed my life. I mean, it absolutely turned me into a new person. Yeah. And at the end of five years, I was driving, I was living in California, I was driving in the hills, and I said to God, you know, you have completely transformed my life. I don't know how to repay you. I don't know how to respond because you're God and I'm just some schmo, you know, like I'm, I'm nobody. And instantly it came to me, you need to be baptized. And I'm driving along and I actually said out loud, I said, are you kidding me? You know, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I, why would I do that? You know, I was working in Hollywood. Uh, I had just kind of made a separate piece with my father. We had a tough relationship. I thought this is going to blow up everything. It's going to blow up my career. It's going to blow up my family. What am I going to do? But after years of reading the Bible as literature, I went back to it and read it as if it were true. And <laughs> when I did that and re-examined my life and cross-questioned my thoughts over all that time, I realized, yeah, yeah, this is what I believe. This is the God I'm talking to. Uh, and so I was baptized and it was remarkable. It was remarkable. I didn't even think about, you know, I kind of did it offhandedly because I thought that's ah, just a ritual. You know, I already believe, but it, it was transformative. Okay. It's, and you, you go into that in your book. And I thought that was very interesting too. And that is that it's not the, it's not the water does some kind of trick, but there's something greater going on in the ritual that has meaning. It's not the meaning of the ritual. It's the meaning that the ritual represents. Am I correct in in reading you there? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually believe that this ages-long fight that's been going on between Catholics and Protestants about the meaning of the of communion of the bread and wine is actually in error. You know, I, I know I'm not the person to say it, but that's the, the, truly the way I feel. That the idea that something is a symbol doesn't just mean it's a symbol; it means we experience it. We experience the meaning of it. I mean, that's why Jesus told parables. He spoke in parables so we would experience a meaning that can't be expressed in words. If he could have just given us the moral of the story, he would have saved time and given us the moral of the story. A story is an experience that tells you something more than words. And so, and that's how we, that's how we get meaning. We, it's in all of our lives, you know? The meaning of, of kicking a child is different than the meaning of giving a beggar bread. And, and when people say, well, you have your meaning, I have my meaning, no, we're actually connecting with a meaning. And to me, that's really the meaning of supernatural. We're connecting with something that is above nature. It is supernatural. Yeah, yeah, love it, love it. Okay, and that leads you to the point where you write in your book, the meaning of Jesus' life is the meaning of everything. His truth is truth. His right is right. His beauty is beauty. These are human ideas, truth, right, beauty. These are ways we humans experience the indescribable logos, uh, John 1, 1 reference, but how do we know our truths are true, our right is right, and our beauty is beautiful? We know by knowing Jesus. Right. This is, this is what Coleridge, Coleridge using a word I had never heard before. He said, Jesus is the sensorium, by which he meant he is the right 
connection of man to God. He is the right connection of man to God. And each one of us experiences that in a, in a unique way, but we can't experience it on our own. We experience it as a branch of the vine. We experience it as, as part of that right way. And, um, and that's what these poets kind of ended up looking for, even though they didn't know they were looking for it a lot of times. Yeah. All right. I'm, I got to hit a couple things because I know I'm running out of time. Uh, Explain to me your view of the Good Samaritan, because I, I love I love this, and I, I'm not even sure I agree, but I just loved it. You know, I've gotten into, into this argument with people so many times, and when I wrote it in the book, my editor said I don't get it either. You know, but recently I heard a priest express it beautifully. He said, he said the Good Sam, the lawyer who comes to Jesus, he says, you know, what do I have to do? Uh, who is my neighbor? And you say, love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And then he says, who is this man's neighbor? And, you know, when the when the man is mugged and the Samaritan helps him, he says, who's the mugged man's neighbor? And the lawyer says, well, it, it's the Samaritan. And Jesus says, then be like the Samaritan, right? That's not the question that he asked, you know? And what, what Jesus has done is he has taken the objective, this is how the priest explained it to me, and made it subjective. The, the lawyer is looking for who is my neighbor? But what Jesus tells him is, you become the neighbor of the person. And he doesn't tell that because it's going to make the mugged man a good person. He doesn't tell him because it's going to make the world a better place. He tells him because it's going to transform the way he sees things. It's going to transform him in what he sees. And I think this is where a lot of churches go wrong. And again, it's not for me to say, but I think a lot of churches think we are going to make the world a better place. And there's one thing that Jesus never, ever said is that the world is going to become a better place. He said exactly the opposite. He said, you know, give money to the poor, give your money to the poor, but the poor you'll always have with you. Follow me and the world will hate you. It hated me. It's going to hate you. It's not going to get better. It's not going to. So what he is looking for, what the lawyer is looking for is he's looking for who is my neighbor. And Jesus is essentially saying, you are the neighbor. You know, you are the guy because he doesn't say, uh, you know, therefore like Samaritans because they're your neighbor, which would have been a a tough thing to say to the Jews. They didn't love the Samaritans. He says, be like the, the Samaritan, because then you will see people as they are. Mm-hmm. Just like loving your enemy. It doesn't make your enemy a good guy when you love your enemy. He doesn't say, oh, you love me now. I'm not going to I'm going to stop being your enemy. You know, he, he could just be a terrible person. Mm-hmm. But when you love him, you see him as God sees him. And suddenly that transforms you. That. OK. And that right there is maybe one of the biggest points of your, of your book is this idea of seeing the world and people as God sees them. And, and that, that is maybe what, what Jesus was trying to communicate. And that by getting to know him, we can begin to do that. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, Sermon on the Mount. I gotta, I gotta ask you because I love, I love your confusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Cause I think we've all been there at some point. If you're honest, you go I, that the contradictions, I don't get it. Right. No. What do what do you see? I see him trying to teach you how to see. That's what that's what I came to, that he was trying to teach you to see as God sees. And I have to tell you, when you treat the Sermon on the Mount that way, it explodes. It explodes. You know, the old the Internet meme where the guy's head explodes. It's it's like that. It changes everything. And that's why I say writing this book and kind of finding these things out really changed me. The Sermon on the Mount, you know, we, we tend to talk about Christianity as if it were be good so you don't get punished and then you get rewarded, you know. Mm-hmm. But but that that's not really what it's about. I mean, the be good part is so important because it clears your path. 
And you know that there's one verse where the guy says, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus kind of rattles off almost almost like offhand. He's sort of, well, don't steal, don't murder, don't, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, you know the routine. And the guy says, well, I do all that. And he says, okay, well then give all your money away. You know, and you think, you know, how did he get to that? Well, I think that what he's saying is don't murder, don't, don't live in your lust, don't live in your greed, don't live in your anger, let it go, and then set about the task, the lifelong task of seeing the world as God sees it. When you do that, you become part of creation. You are the part of creation that creates. And I think that that is a beautiful experience of life, even in moments when life is terribly painful. Uh, It is still a, a weirdly beautiful experience. Yeah, and that gets us to near the end of the book where you write, when you see the world as it truly is, you begin to break out of the flow of its glorious illusions. You need not worry for tomorrow. You need not bother to make a show of your righteousness, ouch. You need not pray in endless displays of virtue. You need not devote your life to storing up treasure of any kind. When we're busy with these things, we are busy with these things, but only one thing is necessary. So if you have, see if you have eyes to see with here, if you have ears to hear, and I, that's transformative. I want to give you the last word and, and say thank you and for writing the book and for taking the time to talk to our audience. Uh, but w- w- what are you really hoping that people kind of get to, if you haven't already said it, by reading the beauty or the truth and the beauty? Well, I started out with this book because every time I understand something that Jesus said, I, I get more joyful. I mean, and I don't just get more joyful. I don't mean in the moment I feel happy. I mean, my life actually gets more joyful, even if it's just by a little bit. And so when you come to the Sermon on the Mount and you think, I don't get it, you're missing out on this big path to joy. And I talk to a lot of Christians like you. A lot of Christians listen to my show on the Daily Wire, uh, and they email me, and I you know, communicate with them. And a lot of them, are, are, I feel, are lacking that joy. They're busy with being angry at the world, yeah. which we're told is going to be the world. They're busy judging other people's sins, which we're told not to do. They're busy worrying about the end of days, which we're told we know nothing about. Uh, all those things are actually in the Gospels. You don't know anything about the end of days. Don't judge, lest you be judged. So what is it he's saying? How is How are we going to get this life in abundance that he talks about? And for me, this was a path. This was a path to starting to understand that. And I do feel it. And now I've started to discover other people who found these things, other writings uh, that say these things. And and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful experience. And it's it's a godly experience. And I think it's made it's made it's brought me closer to God. And so if it helps do that to listen, if it helps that to one person, uh, it's been uh, it's been worth it to me. Well, Andrew Clavin, that one person would be me. So congratulations, mission accomplished. Uh, And I would encourage uh, everyone, and thank you, by the way, thank you again. I would encourage everybody out there to check out The Truth and Beauty by Andrew Clavin. Uh, It is, it'll challenge you. And again, even you may read some things go, I don't know about that. And that's fine. Work through it. Walk through it. Uh, Because it'll bring you closer to God, even if it doesn't bring you to agreement. So check that out. It's available right now. You can also check out andrewclavin.com. Looks just like this. There's some great things there. Hit share, hit like, hit follow, hit subscribe. Um, We'll we'll see you again next time. Appreciate you being here on Life Today Live.